Hello and welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast. War is, by nature, violent, destructive and unpredictable, something that resists being controlled. However, there are rules which every single country in the United Nations has signed up to. But like all laws, those governing warfare set out in the Geneva Conventions are interpreted differently by different people. Even some of Israel's closest allies have increasingly stressed the need to adhere to those laws, suggesting they might take a different legal view. So we wanted to explore the key principles and just how clearly they draw the lines, from minimising civilian harm to proportionality and military necessity. How do you decide what can or can't be done when you're in the heat of battle? Reverend Nicholas Mercer knows very well how it all works. 20 years ago, as a Lieutenant Colonel, he was the Army's top legal advisor in the Iraq War. We've been discussing how the military legal challenges he faced in Basra are mirrored in Gaza today. Who decides whether an action is legal or not, and whether the UK would be prepared to take some of the actions Israel has carried out in Gaza. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. Reverend Mercer, really great to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. I just want to understand your experience in all of this. Can you explain the role that you actually played as a legal advisor to the British Army in Iraq? Yes, the um, British Army has 140 lawyers, or it certainly did when I left. And those lawyers really have a twofold role. One is to prosecute at court martial, and their operational role is to, to give legal advice on the laws of war to divisional commanders in war. So my job as the commander legal in the 1st Armoured Division was to give real-time legal advice to the GOC of the 1st Armoured Division on the laws of war during the battle, both in preparing for it during and afterward. So uh, on a practical level, how does that actually work? How, how is the legal advice sought and given when you're in an active war zone? Well, it's, I mean, the, it's in real time. So in a sense, you've got to have your eyes and ears open to what's going on around you. That's one way. So if you, it alerts you to something that might be happening. Your advice might be sought during the conduct of the operation itself. So to just give you an example, for instance, on the close battle for Basra, we were worried about firing artillery into Basra itself and whether it complied with the law of armed conflict. So Commander Royal Artillery sought me out. We went through the type of artillery that might be used and found a schematic that would ensure that any artillery strike was in accordance with the laws and customs of war. And what was the legal advice then in that situation? It, it's complicated, um, but the first Geneva Protocol of 1977 is really the definitive document because that set out for the first time the laws that apply to targeting. So obviously it's relevant for an artillery strike in a city, particularly because of the complexity of civilian objects and military objectives at the same time. And it's very relevant to the situation in Israel and Gaza at the moment. If you listen to Mark Regev, the advisor to Benjamin Netanyahu on the radio and the television, he's quoting from the first Geneva Protocol all the time, because that really is the definitive document for this conflict. And who's expected to have uh, what level of legal knowledge about the laws of war? Well, um, we are trained specifically in the laws of war. So we were sent off to university to train in that very subject. 
Uh, then we were sent off to a course given by the Red Cross in San Remo, and I became an instructor in the Lords of Armed Conflict uh, to the Red Cross in Italy. And what about the soldiers on the ground who you're advising? Well, that's difficult too, because all, all soldiers will have a law of armed conflict training session each year that has to be refreshed. They'll get one when they're about to deploy and when they are in theatre. When it comes to targeting, that's quite specialist. They wouldn't need to know that unless, for instance, they were a battery commander, for instance, in the Royal Artillery or flying an aircraft or whatever means of delivery you've chosen to attack the enemy. Every member of the UN is signed up to the same core laws of war, international humanitarian law, as set out in the Geneva Conventions. But law is always subject to different interpretations. So we just wanted to compare what we know about British and Israeli doctrine on some key points. Um, Central to both is the right to self-defence, either from an attack that has begun or to prevent a future attack. Uh, Is there any room for different interpretations on that? Self-defence is fairly straightforward. A country is entitled to defend itself. So if it is attacked, it can defend itself, just as you can defend yourself if you are attacked in the street. So that's pretty clear cut. And that act of self-defence is ongoing in Israel, Gaza, as we speak. Uh, One of the difficulties is preemptive self-defence. So if you know that someone is planning to wage war against you, at what point can you strike them in anticipation of that potential act of war? Actually, in the case of Israel, it's really interesting because in 1981, they hit the Osirak nuclear reactor in Iraq. Uh, When it was being built, the difficulty with nuclear reactors are the longer you leave them, the more the damage is that's caused to civilian population around them if you strike it. So the Israelis put in a very, very early preemptive attack. And although people condemned it, I'm not sure there was much appetite to take it any further because actually those nuclear weapons could have been used against Israel. So that was an example of preemptive self-defense. You don't have to wait to be struck before you can take action in self-defense. And UK guidelines for soldiers state that steps have to be taken to reduce civilian casualties as much as possible. One of the authors of Israel's doctrine, Asa Kasha, wrote recently that every effort should be made to minimise civilian casualties. Yeah. Do, do they amount to the same thing or is there a move for different interpretations there? I mean, there are a number of different legal provisions at work. One is the customary international law. Now, that's a technical phrase, but that isn't actually written down. It's just the, the established laws and customs of the nations, which becomes legally binding because it is universally accepted as being the way that we conduct ourselves on the battlefield. There are other provisions um, relating to the civilian population. Going back to the Geneva Protocol of 1977, it sets out for the first time very clearly uh, the principle of distinction, distinguishing between military and um, civilian objects. It sets out the um, precautions you have to take before an attack, and it sets out the principles of proportionality. So when you do attack something, it has to be proportionate. In other words, it can't be excessive in relation to the military advantage anticipated. 
Yeah, I'll ask you in a moment a bit more about the proportionality. Um, but how yeah. do you determine that every effort has been made or that steps have been taken to reduce civilian casualties as much as possible? Someone can always argue that more could have been done. Yeah, possibly. Um, I think you, if you knew what went on with targeting, I think people will be surprised just how much care is taken. I can only speak for the British because I've only been involved in British military operations, but normally there's a target set in advance of a conflict, and all those targets are, are modelled in advance, uh, and then you, you model the direction of attack, the type of munition used, and the collateral damage anticipated. And that has to be signed off by both a lawyer and a political advisor to check that it, it meets the legal requirements uh, and it's politically acceptable at the same time. So it's quite a sophisticated operation. So if someone did say that was in breach of the laws of war, you would show your workings out uh, if ever that came to a court. And on that subject of proportionality, both doctrines of military have proportionality of military action as a key principle. Um, yeah. That seems a very subjective term, though. Is it legally clear? Well, that's that's a good question, because the law sets out very clearly that it must be proportionate. The question is, what is the jurisprudence around that issue? Now, that's complicated for two reasons. One is there's very little jurisprudence. So all we've got on proportionality and distinction is from the from Yugoslavia. So there are just two cases. There's the Martic case and the Galic case. In one case, there was shelling Zagreb. In the second case, they were sieging Sarajevo. But there isn't much to go on in terms of drawing principles from those rulings. The other difficulty, of course, is that Israel is not a signatory to the Rome Statute. So it would be a matter for the Israeli Supreme Court to decide, not the ICC, save to say that the chief prosecutor at the ICC hasn't said that Israel falls outside the jurisdiction. So even the jurisdiction is an issue at this point. Are you able, just briefly, and it's probably very complicated, but to describe what um, those two cases you mentioned, what they determined about proportionality? Well, in, in the Martic case, um, there was a, a commander on the Croatian side in Zagreb who was in a block of flats. So they started firing artillery rounds into the block of flats. Now, the case is complicated because it was an appeal, but in principle, you know, they said there will be civilian casualties. And that was, you know, was that permissible? Was it excessive in relation to the military advantage anticipated? One of the advantages anticipated was command and control. Do you really fire artillery into a block of flats? So you might be able to draw something from that. The second case is about the siege of Sarajevo and gratuitous shelling into the city of Sarajevo, a siege that went on for longer than Stalingrad. And they were found guilty of some use of excessive force. Uh, the UK's doctrine has military necessity as, as a basic test for the use of force. Yeah. Uh, who decides and how whether a particular action is necessary, particularly if it carries a risk to civilian of civilian casualties? Well, it would go through the legal process. The target would be scrutinised in advance. So it, it's a collective process of the targeteers with legal input. And can you actually measure proportionality? I mean, particularly when civilian lives are being lost, can it be objectively measured, do you think? 
that, that's a very good question. What is acceptable? I think that the ratio de varies depending on the military advantage anticipated. So by way of example, in the Iraq war, we thought that we'd found Chemical Alley in Basra, and he was hiding in a building there. Therefore, if, you, if you're going to strike a regime figure, the military advantage anticipated is very high. Therefore, the tolerance, that's a really horrid word, but the tolerance for damage and casualties is higher because the military advantage it anticipated is greater. And it's in the circumstances existing at the time. As it happened, he wasn't even in the building. The intelligence was wrong. That's one of the difficulties of real-time legal advice and you know, targeting in the midst of a battle. That's, you know, unfortunately, that it's very difficult to know whether the information you've been given is accurate at all times. And when you look at what has happened in Gaza, uh, where hospitals have been left without power, the World Health Organization says at least 22 hospitals have been damaged. Israel says it's launched a targeted operation inside the largest hospital because it says Hamas is operating from tunnels beneath it. Um, based on what we know from limited media reporting, would that meet UK tests for military necessity, do you think? That's really difficult. First, the first thing to say is that if, if there are protected objects in a battle. So, for instance, religious buildings and medical buildings are protected. However, if those, if that protection is violated, in other words, it's used by the enemy for military operations, then it loses its protected status. So that's the first thing to state. But that doesn't negate the need to protect civilians when it comes to military operations against them. So in the case of a hospital, the, the requirement in law to protect the very, very vulnerable civilians in a hospital will weigh very heavily on the decision making. And in those circumstances, you're more likely to put in a surgical strike, so to speak, so the troops around it, and then you send in, as the Israelis have done in Al-Sharif Hospital, they've sent in commando teams, so the civilians are kept safe, and then the tunnels are then cleared of enemy forces. So in my view, that's the way to do it. Contrast that, however, with the Jabalia refugee camp, where the Israelis put a JDAM bomb into the middle of the refugee camp. And you've got to ask yourself whether that is in accordance with the laws of war, particularly proportionality and distinction. There is a further complicating factor in this war, determining who is a combatant and who is a civilian. Um, that's clear when both sides are state militaries, but we've also faced this with counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan. How do you do that? Very difficult. Distinction still applies, but it, it makes it much harder. That's why they don't wear uniform, so they don't stand out easily. And they don't distinguish themselves from the civilian population. It makes it very hard for the troops. Uh, you can, to a degree, assist the troops. So we, when we were advising on British troops in Basra, for instance, if they were carrying a weapon, then that was an obvious engagement that you could undertake. Um, and you've seen some of the um, drone footage or the satellite imagery of members of Hamas with rocket-propelled grenades, for instance. And so obviously carrying a weapon, they can be engaged. It's as simple as that. So you don't know if they're, we presume they're Hamas. But in, in, in Basra, for instance, it's difficult to see there's a sort of almost a custom ca carrying weapons 
even if you weren't fighting against the enemy, it was very dangerous. I mean, and what are you, what are we there to tell troops? Yeah, it is. It you can help the troops, but you can't make it. Ultimately, the decision comes down to them as to how they employ military force in those circumstances. And when this war is over, or at least in a much later phase, will the legality automatically be examined? And how does the delivery of justice actually work? Well, that's really interesting here because Israel is not a party or a signatory to the Rome Statute. The Rome Statute was passed in 1998, and it's supposed to deliver universal accountability uh, for war crimes across the world. And nations like the United Kingdom have signed up to it. Of course, America hasn't signed up to it. And Donald Trump said that he would arrest any members of the International Criminal Court who set foot in America. So there's lots of hostility to the Rome, to the Rome Statute. Uh, Israel hasn't signed the Rome Statute either. So either the, the, the ICC in The Hague says we do have jurisdiction and tries to exercise it, and that would be an opening argument in the court as to whether they have jurisdiction, or the Israeli Supreme Court hears the case brought, and you'd have to be a, a, a legal, have legal personality to bring such a case. And we need to remember also that Israel was attacked, more than a thousand civilians murdered in one day, yeah. hundreds kidnapped in actions that clearly breached the laws of war. Um, Hamas is not a state. Is there any legal route that could potentially hold Hamas and its leadership accountable? It's a really, again a really interesting question. I mean, this is really the, like the exam question from hell, really. Um, it, yes, I think there is, because even if the state of Palestine, and I use that word carefully, is it a state? It's, it has observer status at, at the United Nations, for instance. But I think they were, even though they hadn't went signatories to the conventions, I think customary international law would still apply. And there's also a provision called Common Article 3, which is a sort of baseline set of rules that holds people to account in cases falling short of international armed conflict. So you can't, even if you're not a state, even if it's not an international armed conflict as defined, there are still rules which could be applied to people who, like Hamas, breach the laws of war in such a grotesque way. Interestingly, Common Article 3 specifically mentions the taking of hostages. So that, that would catch, catch them, hopefully, on that provision. And where could they be tried? Well, I, I think The Hague would be, would, would be any place. I mean, you could, I mean, for instance, pre-1998, before the Rome Statute, the international community set up the International Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. So international jurists got together, set up a set up a court, applied universal jurisdiction, uh, and then the people who committed those war crimes in the Balkans were gradually handed over and tried before the ICTY, and many are still in jail today. So it may be that some sort of tribunal like that has to be constructed, put together, and that would then give it the jurisdiction of teeth. In the same way that Nuremberg did in 1945, there was no such provision, but we set up the Nuremberg files the whole regime numbers to account. Can I just um, end by asking you a, a 
personal question. I'm just intrigued to know uh, you now in your role as a man of the church, um, how it is looking from the outside with the knowledge and the, the, the previous career that you had advising on the legality of taking lives. How does it seem now that you're, you're outside the military? Your legal training never really leaves you. So I'm, I'm a critical viewer of the television and there's quite a lot of nonsense spoken but by commentators on it. Um, yes, I, I, I mean, the laws of war are ultimately about bringing humanity to the battlefield. So, I, you know, it, war is almost on loads to say, but it's, it's sort of inevitable and part of the human condition. But you can see here how the law is operating to try and bring some humanity to that ghastly situation that is called Gaza. Nicholas Mercer, Reverend Mercer, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you very much. News, discussions, and analysis. This is Sitrep.